this, this morning is the perfect love and the perfect righteousness of Christ's kingdom. Now, when most of us think about love, typically watching movies, being at weddings, talking about relationships, when we think and talk about love, typically most of us are not thinking about righteousness. Righteousness and the righteousness of God is not typically what comes to the forefront of our mind as we listen to all the Taylor Swift songs about love, right? And uh, on a personal note, I have yet to be asked by anyone, Pastor Mark, when you come and preach at our wedding, would you please preach about the righteousness of God? Matt and Josephine, maybe you can be the first, right? But as we come to God's word, God shows us that unlike that warm emotion, and God's love does have emotion, but unlike the self-serving love of this world, which is really just lust, God's love is a love that is right. God's love is a love that is righteous. God's love is a love that is perfect and it is holy. And as we look at our own lives and we look at the world around us and we look at the wars around us and as we walk through God's word, we see that this is indeed good news because this is the love that we all so desperately need, a love that is redemptive and that saves the worst of sinners because it is righteous. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm 33? Psalm 33. And in this psalm, the psalmist is exhorting God's people. And in verse 1, he exhorts them to shout for joy in the Lord. And in verse 2, he exhorts them to give thanks to the Lord. And in verse 3, he exhorts them to sing to him a new song. Brothers and sisters, what do you shout for joy to the Lord for? What do you give thanks to the Lord for? What do you sing to him for? Even as we sang this morning, and sometimes the words of these songs, for myself, all of us, we've sung them so many times, and we're barely waking up. I'm there with you, okay? And it's just routine, routine, routine. But as we read Psalm 33, there's this overwhelming sense of emotion, of affection, that just overflows the entirety of the psalmist to shout for joy, to give thanks to the Lord, to sing him a new song. Why? Verse 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is upright. That word for, that's the explanation why all these things are happening. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Another way of translating faithfulness is truth. He loves righteousness and justice. How does the psalmist sum all this up? He says, the earth is full of the steadfast love 
or loving kindness of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what moves God's people to rejoice and give thanks and sing a new song to the Lord? It is a love that is faithful and true. It is a love that is just and kind. It is a love that is perfectly righteous. And this is the love, brothers and sisters, that brings light into the darkness of our world. And as we come this morning to the God-breathed words of the gospel according to Matthew, this is the perfect righteousness that God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ, brings into the lives of his disciples. This is the perfect righteousness that Jesus brings to his cross. And this is the perfect righteousness that Christ demands to be the presentation in his kingdom. It is the perfect righteousness that is nothing less than God's perfect love. And this, brothers and sisters, is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's about the way God's perfect love is the only truth and reality that fulfills the righteousness of God. You can't just go down a list of commands and say, okay, done it, done it, done it. It is not a religion of do's and don'ts. And when we make it that way, we sorely distort the character of God and his word. It is a faith in a God whose love is perfect and perfectly righteous. And this is what Jesus is walking the disciples through in the Sermon on the Mount. And when he starts with the Beatitudes, he shows them this is what a life looks like that is ruled by the perfect love of God. It is meek. It is humble. It is gentle. It is gracious. It is merciful. And when it is persecuted for righteousness' sake, it does not retaliate in kind, Instead, it rejoices because this is the way they persecuted the prophets. It is a bright light and it is salt in a world that is just filled with self-absorption and selfish ambition. How do I get mine? What works for me? And then as Jesus walks through the rest of chapter 5, he walks us through a series of examples that shows us what God's perfect love is and what it is not and how this perfect love is right and it fulfills all of God's word and it is right before God, not before men. And as we come to the end of chapter 5, which is where we are this morning, our Lord and Savior shows us this is the love that he has come to bring into our lives. This is the love that he will die for. This is the love that fulfills all the law and the prophets. This is the love that he requires of all his disciples. Not the love of the world, but the perfect love of God. And this, brothers and sisters, is really our big truth for this morning. The perfect righteousness of Christ's kingdom is the perfect love of God.
The perfect righteousness of Christ's kingdom is the perfect love of God. And in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, Jesus shows us what this perfect love is not and what it is. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and we'll read a little bit before and we'll go from where we were before at Matthew 33, but our focus is verses 43 to 48. Again, if you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What Jesus is showing here is the truth of God's love, that God's love is faithful and God's love is truthful. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Sorry. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. I had a patient of mine once who came to see me shortly after she was married. And so just as a general greeting, I had said to her, so how's married life? And she replied to me, she said, you learn quickly that marriage is all about what? Compromise. Have you heard that? And all she was sharing was her reality, but also a conventional wisdom that we hear often. Marriage is all about compromise. And brothers and sisters, we live in a world where what is called love and righteousness typically ends in conflict or compromise. Be it our marriages, our families, the shepherding of our children, or the Gaza Strip. It's no different. 
But the good news of God's word, brothers and sisters, and what you just heard is that with Jesus, there is no compromise. Not with God's word, not with God's righteousness, and not with God's love. Especially with the love that he requires of all his disciples. And sadly, as we think about the church and most religions, the way we function is let's lower the standard, let's lower the standard, let's lower the standard because people can't meet the standard. So we compromise God's word to make it fit what we can do. We compromise God's love so we can sort of look like we love and we compromise on God's righteousness so that we can more or less look like we're doing okay. And in the meantime, we're dying inside. Because the only love, brothers and sisters, that saves is God's perfect love. And we rejoice and give thanks that we have a Savior and a God who does not compromise because he is the Holy Son of God. And he loves with his Father's love. And that is, brothers and sisters, the love that has saved us. And when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you know this pattern. Once again, he's referring to how most people understand and hear the law. What people thought God's word said. What they wanted God's word to say. And as always, there's a monumental difference between what God's word actually says and what most people assume it says. Why is this the case? Our hearts, brothers and sisters, are selfish. And we desire to hear what pragmatically works well for ourselves. But Jesus points out this is not God's way and this is not God's love. In Leviticus 19.18, the Lord God, through his prophet Moses, gave Israel the following command. He said, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Now the emphasis on this specific command is not on who you loved. It's on how you love. The Lord is giving a command specifically of how we are to love our neighbors and the sons of our own people, our community, our nation, the nation, the old covenant nation of Israel. How are you to love these people? Later, he's going to give a command of how we're to love our enemies. So this is a very specific command. And the command is how we are to love. And how are we, are, how are we to love our neighbors? the way we love ourselves. Let me ask you, do you forgive yourself? Do you ever bear a grudge against yourself? Do you ever take vengeance against yourself? How often do we let things slide or give ourselves a pass or say, I, I did my best? You see, we're to hold that same standard for others. God is challenging our pride. The way we stand above others and we hold one standard for ourselves and give ourselves latitude, and yet we hold others to an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The emphasis here that God is saying is you're to love others like me. I love you as I love myself, and I'm going to prove it when I give my son to die on the cross for you. 
you're to love others in the way at least that you love yourself, how you love. And we see that this is carried on entirely through the law. If you have your Bibles, have a look at Exodus 23.4. Exodus 23.4. Moses again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking to the people of the law. He says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, that burden. You shall rescue it with him. Carry your enemy's burdens in a time of need and in a time of rescue. And so we see consistently God throughout the law is emphasizing how we love. And that love is to reflect the way in which God loves us. Even if it means doing something hard, like caring for your enemy's ox. It's a tall standard. But things changed, didn't it? Because that's hard to do. Who wants to take care of your enemy's ox? So the conventional wisdom and the standard of righteousness and love became, modify it down to what we do, the much catchier and appealing, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Which sounds similar and uses similar language, but the emphasis is completely switched from how we are to love to who we are to love. Who we have to love and who we get to hate. And though this sounds similar, like all lies from the pit, the difference is enormous. This is not about loving God's way. This is about loving the world's way. What works for me? That's pragmatism. What works for me? And this, brothers and sisters, is the natural tendency of our self-serving and self-absorbed hearts. This is the natural tendency of our righteousness and our love and our exegesis. We filter things in a way of, how does this work for me? These are good lessons. The Ten Commandments are good lessons. I'm going to teach them to my children so they have a biblical worldview so that they're pleasing to God and they don't get into trouble. I'm going to show them all the things that happen when they sin so my kids are terrified so they live a clean life. And brothers and sisters, we do this all the time and it reflects what our hearts are. We hear what we want to hear. And we share things with one another and pieces of advice or snippets of sermons many times that have no bearing on the intent. I had a brother come to me one time. He's probably not a brother. And he said to me, man, my girlfriend's giving me a hard time. She just wants to talk and talk and talk and talk. And I don't know what to say. What should I do, Pastor Mark? And I said, why don't you take a moment to pray and read some scripture before you respond? And that got translated, as I found out later, to, I'm not going to talk to you at all today because Pastor Mark told me not to talk to you. He told me just to read the scripture and pray. So we ain't talking. 
like, what? But think about what we say to our kids. Do you ever hear that saying, God helps those who help themselves? And we think it's coming from the Bible. And brothers and sisters, it's a lie from the pit. If God helped those who help themselves, how many of you would be here in church today? How many of you would know Jesus? How many of you would be forgiven? Here is love. While we were yet sinners, couldn't help ourselves, what? Christ died for us. And Jesus is pointing out, when he says, you've heard this, but I say to you, he's pointing out in verse 44 and 45, Jesus speaking as Messiah and King, he immediately points out this pragmatic way of thinking and loving. It's not right. It's not right love, it's wrong love. Why? Well, it brings us to our first point. Children of God are to love like God. They're not to love like the world. And this is the way the world loves. There is to be a difference if you're a child of God. In verse 44, Jesus says to his disciples, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And with these words, Jesus as Messiah and King is commanding his disciples to do the very opposite of what the world teaches and what the world calls love and what the world calls righteousness. The very opposite, not close, not a little different, not better than the world, the opposite. And it's worth noting that when Christ gives this command, the language he uses, present progressive tense, it's unconditional ongoing. It doesn't stop. Not one and done. I was nice to this person done. God. Unconditional, ongoing, a universal always command. No exceptions. And according to Jesus, enemies, the enemies the disciples are to love are not simply people who are difficult to us or unkind to us or say things that we don't like to hear or don't vote the way we vote. Enemies, verse 44b, have a look at it, are those who persecute you. Persecute, ongoing, active. And the idea of persecution is the idea of hunting you down, relentless, ongoing pursuit, personal attack, with the intent to discredit you and destroy you. It's the idea of taking someone to court and bearing false witness against them in front of the judge so that they are incarcerated. And earlier in Matthew 5, verse 10 through 11, Jesus shows this persecution involves reviling false accusations, false accusations of evil, torturing, murdering, just as they did to the prophets. Why? Because of Christ and his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is not praying for your boss because he doesn't like the job that you do. You should. But Jesus is saying, look, this is the standard. This is Saul the Pharisee hunting down, imprisoning, and torturing believers, separating them from their families. This is who we are to love. And how does Christ command his disciples to love such enemies? Avoid them, don't get in their way, forget them, ignore them. He says, pray for those who persecute you. How's your prayer life? The Greek words that 
Jesus uses and the grammar he uses here of the prayer refers to ongoing active intercession, advocating on behalf of this person before God, advocating on their behalf, not for yourself. Lord, fix this man so I can get on with my job, right? Look, I prayed that. I'm there. Okay, this sermon was pretty convicting for me. There's a lot that I need to grow in. But you look at what Jesus is saying. Just because I struggle to keep this doesn't mean I change what Christ is saying. Jesus is calling for us not to pray for ourselves. He's calling us to pray specifically for those who are persecuting us because of our righteousness, because of our stand for Christ. He's calling us to pray for them as they are actively crucifying us. Charles Quarles, a New Testament scholar, says, Jesus commanded his disciples to pray blessings on their persecutors, even as the scourge lacerated their flesh. This is Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, as Roman soldiers play dice or gamble for his robe. And brothers and sisters, this is the way in which Christ, our great high priest, has prayed for you. This is how he prays for you. This is how, when we go to Hebrews, he intercedes on our behalf on a consistent basis. Father, they are not right. They are not good. They are not perfect, but I died for them, and they are covered by my blood. He advocates on our behalf. Now, we can't do the same. We don't know whether our enemies are going to be saved. But we can intercede on their behalf and come before the Lord actively. And we think of Moses interceding and standing before the Lord and praying and talking to him and asking for God's mercy and grace and his kindness for the children of Israel, even as they worship false idols, a people who came to Moses and said, we don't have food, we don't have anything to eat. Who are we going to blame? Who are we going to throw stones at? Who? Moses. And Moses steps in between and comes before God and he intercedes on their behalf and prays for them. For God's mercy and his grace and in goodness and appeals to God's righteousness. Yes, God is just, but he also appeals to God's promises. He does so by faith in God's word. And he's a foreshadow of the one who will forgive us even as we crucify him on the cross. How are we to love our enemies, brothers and sisters? By praying without ceasing, not for ourselves, but for those who are far, 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 far from God. And why do we do this, brothers and sisters? For what purpose? Do we do it to resolve the conflict? Do we do it to win them over? Do we do it to show them, hey, I'm a nice guy? Verse 45, so that, so that purpose, you may be sons of of your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus, you know, is not here suggesting disciples are to love this way, to become a child of God, or to earn salvation. To the contrary. He's pointing out, God is already your Father. Because of Jesus, God is a believer's Father. But disciples are to love this way simply because simply because 
This is who their father is. This is the way he loves. And this is what it means to be a son. To be a son is to live and love like your father. And sons are to love this way because, quite simply, brothers and sisters, it is right. Not for any personal benefit, not for any personal reward, simply because it is right. Now, some days, my boys, they get pragmatic, Mark. Those are probably not good days. And on those days, I want to teach them everything that this world is going to do to them and how they can protect themselves and how they can avoid suffering and how can they avoid the shady people out there and all of those different things. And certainly, we need to give our children lessons in right and wrong. But Christ is coming here and saying, hey, you do this. Because this is who you are and this is what God has made you. And on my better days, happens rarely. When my boys come in and they say, why can't we do this? And they want an explanation. The best answer I can give is, look, you're a chin. Chins don't roll that way. That's the best explanation I can give you. You do it because that's who we are. Brothers and sisters, how often is what we do and what we say and what we pray and what we teach our children done pragmatically to avoid suffering and conflict and to make anxiety go away? To achieve an outcome that works for us, that works for my marriage, that works for my family, that makes things run smoothly. And brothers and sisters, this is the way the world loves, where we only do things because there's a reason that works for me. And the flip side is there's hell to pay when it doesn't work for me. And this is what we're seeing in Israel in the Gaza Strip. And quite frankly, we shouldn't point fingers because this happens in our homes. And in verse 45, Jesus explains, this is contrary to how God loves. He says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And here Jesus takes us all the way back before the law to Genesis and to creation and to God's common grace that exists as a foundation for all men. Does God punish sin? Yes, he absolutely does. Did we hear about it this morning in Joshua? Yes, we do. God is righteous. But that also does not overshadow the love and grace God shows all men. It's very much overlooked because these are the things we take for granted. The air we breathe, the life we have, the food we eat, the sun, the rain. Now it's worth noticing what Jesus says. He says, for he makes whose son? His son. How often do we take it for granted? This is our day. This is my solar eclipse. Whatever it is you want to look at, right? This is, this is my good day. This is my bad day. No, it belongs to him. God has created it. And the fact that you get to experience it day in, day out, and wake up every morning, regardless of how you spoke to your children or treated your spouse, and you wake up the next day and the sun rises and it rains, is a testimony and bears witness that God is giving you still time to repent. He's patient with you. 
He has not overlooked your sin, and yet he's still giving you grace and giving you opportunity to know him and come to him. It's a testimony that as God gives, he gives for no personal advantage or benefit to himself. He does for us what is hard. And this is how God loves. Why? Because this is simply who God is. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is righteous. He is holy. And this is how God's children are to be, simply because they are his children. This brings us to our second point this morning. God's children are to be like God, not like the world. How you love, brothers and sisters, is a reflection of what you are. It's why in marriage we can't hide very often what we are. We can do it for the rest of the world. We can do it at church once a week, but what people don't see behind closed doors 24-7. And that's why marriage is such a gift for our sanctification, and by extension, that's why church is such a gift. Because we're around one another all the time, and we can't avoid these things. And in verse 46 through 47, Jesus shows his disciples this truth, that how we love reveals who we really are. Are we sons of God? Or are we sons of the world and the devil? Our love will tell. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you. Once again, the language Jesus uses here, those who love you. He's talking about people who the characteristic of their life is they love you. This person, what are they known for? They love you. What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Well, you know this well. Tax collectors, of which Matthew, the author of this gospel, was a tax collector. Tax collectors were the poster boys for selfish ambition. They had made compromises and they were willing to break the law of Moses and they were willing to be outcasts in order to become wealthy. They would purchase a franchise from Rome and that franchise or business enabled them to collect taxes on roads and toll roads on behalf of the Roman Empire. And as they did so, they were able to keep whatever extra and put that in their pocket. So it usually meant they bullied and took advantage, depending on what the mortgage payments were like, each week and each month from their fellow brothers in order to collaborate and benefit from a pagan and idolatrous empire. Tax collectors were considered to be unclean. If they came over to your house, you needed to wash the dishes and clean it out because you were contaminated by their sin. Tax collectors were barred from going to the synagogue. Church discipline, they were shunned. They very visibly violated God's law for their own personal benefit and wealth. And so they were denied the status of being the sons of Abraham. You're not a son. You're a sellout. And so when the kingdom comes and God's going to make everything right, and the Messiah, the son of David, comes, you are going to get burned and you're going to be out of here. We're going to be in the front of the line. So this is a stinging illustration. And Jesus points out, do not even tax collectors love those who love them. 
And maybe the illustration is, don't criminals and thugs and gangsters hold Super Bowl parties and invite all their friends to come? We aren't doing any better when all we do is invite people who are just like us, look like us, walk like us, and love us, and pat ourselves on the shoulder and say, good job, good job. Now, you do need to invite the people from the church over. You do need to love your brothers. God's not saying don't love your brothers. He's saying, hey, don't think by doing this, you're any better than the tax collectors. This is the love of the world. It's selfish ambition. It's doing something for people who benefit you and you enjoy doing. Let's call it for what it is. And we have to think, brothers and sisters, how easy can it be for the church to become a social club where we come in because people love us and they're kind to us and we get to hang out with people who are just like us and we get to avoid dealing with the ugliness of the world. Christ is coming and saying, hey, disciples, this is not my kingdom. This is not the way we roll. It's worth noting how tax collectors and prostitutes loved to come to Jesus. And they didn't love to come to Jesus because he excused their sin. He did not. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Instead, they saw in Christ a love that was different from the love they had and the love that they saw the Pharisees and scribes had. They saw a perfect love, a love that did not excuse sin, but instead provided the remedy. The perfect love of God. Then in verse 47, Jesus says, And if you greet only your brothers, if you greet only people who are like you, what more are you doing than others? This is a rhetorical question. You're not doing anything more than anybody else. Everyone loves and everyone greets people who are just like us. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And the answer is yes. And once again, this is a stinging rebuke because Gentiles were considered to be dogs, unclean animals. They were godless. They were idolatrous. They sacrificed their children to idols. They were unclean. They are the prototype of the sons of Satan. And when you follow the genealogy of Gentiles all the way back to the scriptures, to Ishmael, to Esau, they were the sons who rejected God and rejected God's love and said, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to get my own. And the world we live in, people who are just getting their own and doing what works for them, independent of God, these are the Gentiles. People who live and worship and sacrifice simply to satisfy their sinful desires and lusts. And this, brothers and sisters, is the way of the world, but it is the way of all false religions. I greet you if you are like me, you vote the same way, you think the same way, and if you don't, I shun you. It's interesting to see Jesus in church discipline not talk about shunning, but going to a brother once, going to a brother twice, going to a brother three times, and then when you put them out, to treat them as a tax collector and a Gentile. How did Jesus treat tax collectors and Gentiles? He called them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Brothers and sisters, when we greet and embrace and love those who are like us, same political views, same color of skin, same worldview, all we're doing is we're validating and loving ourselves. And it the same is true, brothers and sisters, when we shun and avoid those people who make us feel uncomfortable. And it's our natural tendency. Let me say, I need as much forgiveness and grace from the Lord for these things as anyone else. It is our natural tendency to want to avoid and be away from people who make us feel uncomfortable about ourselves. But that, brothers and sisters, is our flesh. And Jesus is so graciously showing, and he's pulling this out for the disciples, not to hammer. He's exposing. He says, look, look where this comes from. This has no part of your father. This is contrary to who God is. And this is contrary to who you are. And so this is why he concludes. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Brothers and sisters, this is where all the commandments lead. And you know that Jesus is not saying that we can be or should be perfect before he comes again. He's talking about the direction of our lives. He's talking about what our lives are to be. And there's a little bit of subtlety here. What is the perfection of God? It's his holiness. He is uncompromised. He is without sin. He's not divided. But even more so, he is the great I am. He has no need of you or I. He has no need of anything. When he gives, he gives in a pure way. Because this is who God is. His love is self-giving not self-taking. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need your offering in the plate. He doesn't need you here. He doesn't need your service. He doesn't need me. He does a much better job of preaching the gospel than Mark Chen. He gives freely out of love so that you and I might enjoy and participate and walk in his perfect love because that is the father that he is. Perfect. Perfect. And brothers and sisters, we can't be perfect on our own because we are the creation and we're sinful. We need things. We need a roof over our head. We need sun. We need rain. So there's only one way, brothers and sisters, that we can be perfect. How? It's to be with him. It's to be with God. That's the way God created us in the Garden of Eden, for Adam and Eve, without sin, to be one with God and one with one another. Absolutely no need protected by the Word of God. To be part of God's perfection. Without God, brothers and sisters, all we have is self-absorption and selfish ambition. And this brings us to our final point this morning. The righteous love of Christ is the perfect love of God. The righteous love of Christ is the perfect love of God. What is the remedy, brothers and sisters? Our natural tendency is to be needy. Our natural tendency is to desire. Our natural tendency is to crave. 
Originally, it was to desire and need and crave the Lord. To desire and need and crave his perfect love. We were created to be that way. The same way a baby cries for its mother's milk and cries to be embraced by its mother. It's the way we were created. But sin has come in and distorted that and said, no, thanks, I can do fine on my own. And so our need and our desires and our craving have turned to all these other things in this world that are broken cisterns that do not satisfy. They do for a minute and a moment. Your job satisfies for a minute or a moment. Your family satisfies for a minute or a moment. Your spouse satisfies for a minute or a moment, and then it's gone because guess what? They're not God. And when we expect our spouses to be God, whoa. And even worse, our children. So our hearts descend into self-absorption and selfish ambition. What's the remedy, brothers and sisters? This is why Christ has come. He's come to bring God's perfect love into your hearts and your home, but he does it one way and one way alone. He does it through the lordship of his life and his love, where your life is being ruled by Christ's presence and by his righteousness and by his love. And we see what Christ demonstrates is what God has shown all the way along. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve become God's enemies. They choose not the love of God, but they choose the love of themselves. And they become God's enemy. And what does God do? Does he remove the sun? Does he remove the rain? Does he burn them on the spot? even though death has been promised. He does not overlook sin in his justice. He judges their sin, but then he gives them a promise and plan of salvation, a way in which they can hope and walk and know the love of God. God's love does not overlook sin. It provides the remedy. God's love is both righteous and it is also gracious and it is uncompromisingly righteous and it is uncompromisingly gracious and only God can be that way. And where do we see this, brothers and sisters, most perfectly and most beautifully and most present in our lives? Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And on the cross, we see God's perfect righteousness, his perfect love. He hates sin. He will judge it. He will hold us accountable. But instead of us, his son pays the price and the penalty. And so there too, we see God's uncompromising grace willing and able to forgive the worst of sinners. So the question for us, brothers and sisters, is do we know this love? Is this the love that we are walking in, abiding in? Do we know it? Do we live it? Well, it starts, brothers and sisters, first with us being forgiven. Can I have my next slide, please? How do we apply this truth? Jesus, before the disciples, is making a demand and a command, but he's also giving a choice. You can love the world's way, 
or you can love God's way. Only one way is acceptable. The aim of this is that you would be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. There is one way. When it's Christ's perfection that is covering your life, not your own. And so how do we live this love, brothers and sisters? Because look, our natural tendency is to be selfishly ambitious or self-absorbed. They're two sides of the same coin, by the way. You know that. I'm either going to push for what I want or I'm going to mull over what I don't have. And when I do both, who am I thinking about? Thinking about me. I'm not thinking about my enemy. I'm not thinking about Jesus. I'm not thinking about anybody else. And if I use God's name, it's all about me. As Jesus uncompromisingly says, this is God's love. He makes us aware that this is not our natural love and tendency. And so it begins, brothers and sisters, in recognizing our need for Christ's perfect love and Christ's perfect forgiveness. And brothers and sisters, it's good news because this is why Christ came and he gives it in abundance. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us for all unrighteousness. And we see in this way, Christ doesn't just sweep our sin under the rug. He addresses it, he attacks it head on, and he covers it with God's love. If we're going to recognize our need for this love and this forgiveness, we need to pray consistently for Christ's love and forgiveness for ourselves, but also for our enemies. If we are busy following and obeying Christ, we do not have time to think about ourselves or our woes. Is it hard? Absolutely. What's our propensity? Our propensity typically is to find those things that we do well and do them and say, okay, I've obeyed. But the heat-seeking missile, brothers and sisters, is what's hard. Those portions of Scripture where Christ gives us a command, love your enemies, pray for your enemies, boy, that's hard. And as we go and we seek to follow and obey, we discover we can't do it in our own strength. We don't have the ability, we don't have the inclination, we don't have the tendency. And this, brothers and sisters, is where faith comes in. Until we walk with Christ, until we follow him, we don't need faith. I can do it on my own. But as we walk with him and it starts to become uncomfortable and it starts to become hard, that, brothers and sisters, very frequently is when we begin to look to the Lord and when we ask for his help. And when we see, hey, I fall short, why am I riding this person so hard? Lord Jesus, I need your perfect love that is gracious and merciful and forgiving, yet righteous. Would you give it to me? Would you cover me with your love? And brothers and sisters, as we do so, when we pray the same for those who are hard in our lives, and we all have them, family members, coworkers, they're just hard. It's not even persecution. Brothers and sisters, as we are praying and interceding on their behalf in the gospel, we cannot hate them. Try it and see. I told Julie often, I said, I'm going to pray for this person because if I'm not praying for them, I'm going to be hating them. You can't do it because where Christ is present, where his word is alive, as you follow where he leads, there is no room 
for selfish ambition or selfish absorption. There is only the sweetness and the goodness and the perfection of Christ's love. And brothers and sisters, you will die. You'll take a loss. But Christ will raise you up. And you all know when you've gone to that person where there's been a conflict or a disagreement or you've sinned, and you ask for forgiveness, and it's hard to do, and your flesh fights against it, and you get there, and you receive forgiveness vertically and horizontally, you know the sweetness and the growth and the unity that comes that is not only a blessing for you, but is a light to the world. Your God is different, your Savior is different, and your life in Christ is perfect as his righteousness and his love is, not because of us, but because of him. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, forgive us where we fall short. We so desperately need your perfect love We rejoice that you came and died and rose from the grave so that we might be united with you and united with a love that is perfectly righteous and perfectly good and perfectly holy. We thank you that we're here today because you did what we could not do, what is hard and difficult and impossible. And we ask, Lord Jesus, for those who have treated us unkindly, for those who have disrespected us, for those who have attacked us for the sake of the gospel. Lord, we pray this day for them. Would you save them? Would you show them forgiveness? Would they come to know the goodness of the gospel? May they be like Saul of Tarsus. May they be transformed and become champions of the gospel and champions of a perfect love whoever and wherever they are. In your name we pray, amen.